Get your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 42. The title of this evening's message is Sorrow Through Testing. Sorrow Through Testing. Twenty-two years is roughly the amount of time that has passed since Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Twenty-two years. Nearly a quarter century, over two decades, that's 264 months, 1,147 weeks, and over 8,000 days that these brothers have lived in the reality of the choices that they've made. The brothers' conscience have been seared as they have settled into this new norm of living life in the shadows of an envious and murderous heart. 8,000 days. Wow. That's a lot of time, isn't it? But time has a way of diluting the potency of sin, does it not? We say that one more time. Time has a way of diluting the potency of sin. Think back in your own life, a sin maybe you let hang around a bit too long. Maybe days, maybe weeks. Maybe months and maybe even years or decades, similar to the brothers here in chapter 42. Don't we kind of lose the sting of that sin, the potency or the impact of those choices? It just kind of evaporates away as we settle into life. Have you been there? This is human nature. We plot, we scheme, we, we act. And in denial, many times we feel like we have won in regards to our choices and our sinful behaviors. It's at that point that complacency can set in. We seemingly have gotten away with our sinful choices. There is no external exposure. Looking over our shoulder for a few days or a few weeks. Wow. This isn't so bad. Got rid of our brother. That annoying brother with all these dreams and this proud spirit about him. We we got rid of it. And they settle into going back to tending the flocks. Conscience becomes weakened. Our hearts become cold and hardened to the reality of our depraved nature. Friends, do you ever feel in that spot where you feel stuck in sin? That the ugliness of sin doesn't stir you as it should. Friends, this, this evening, my hope and my prayers when we work through chapter 42 is that we would come to a place of godly sorrow as these brothers will begin to be stirred up themselves through this process of what? Testing, sorrow through testing. We need to be awakened. We need to be stirred. We need to believe what God says about our sin is rightfully true. 
We need the eyes of our heart to be illumined with the truth, the truth of the word of God. Truth has always and will always be the antidote to our sin. So as the song that we often sing says, where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Jesus reminds us of this reality in the Gospel of John, chapter number 8, verses 31 and 32. He's speaking to a group of Jews that, that have gathered. These Jews are, are clinging to the religion, and to some degree they are oblivious to the reality of their sin. And to them, he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. The truth has the power to set us free from the stranglehold of sin. It has the power to eliminate the, the consequences and the effect of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that Dave, Pastor Dave was even alluding to this, this evening uh, during our time of worship. The truth will set you free. You see, the reality of the situation here in Genesis 42 is that for 22 years, these brothers have been living under the oppression of and the weight of the bondage of sin, and they need freedom. Regardless of whether they think they've gotten away with it or not, regardless of the consequences that they may or may not have experienced immediately in the coming days, they are in bondage to that sin. And they need freedom. And just as the brothers here in chapter 42 need freedom from their sinful choices, friends, we certainly ourselves need freedom from our sin. And that's the beauty of the book of Genesis is that we're seeing this beautiful story of redemption continue to grow, continue to flourish, and continue to blossom as it points forward to a saving Messiah that will pay for their sins and that will provide eternal freedom for all those that place their faith and trust in him. These brothers were in need of saving, of freedom, of healing, of restoration. They needed reconciliation between God and this and the, the others in this family. But for 22 years, they chose what? Their sin over being free. It's easy for us to, to look down on them, but how often do we as well as sinful mankind choose our sin over freedom in Christ? Were these brothers? These brothers represented here in Genesis 42, they were the descendants of the covenant promise. They were from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here they are in chapter 42, sitting around, staring at each other, doing absolutely nothing but living in the defeat of their sinful choices. If this doesn't paint a picture of the consequences of sin, and the impact it can make in lives and relationships, I don't know what will. This brings us to the big idea of our text this evening. is this, God often uses difficult circumstances 
and testing in the life of his people to expose sin and draw us to repentance. One more time, God often uses difficult circumstances and testing in the life of his people to expose sin and draw us to repentance. So this evening, we're just going to look at three different ways that God uses circumstances in the life of Joseph's brothers to start the process of bringing them back to an awareness of God's plan. And these three different ways that we observe in Joseph Brothers, they will still be true even for us, for our life, and for the day that we live in. So we could say these are, are somewhat universal or timeless truths that God will use circumstances in the life of his, of his people. The first way that God uses circumstances is this. God uses circumstances of life as a means to reveal his plan. So God uses the circumstances of life as a means to reveal his plan. Before we dive into the granular detail of, of the text, I, I want to make note once again concerning the sovereignty of God. I can't promise that it will be the last time, <laughs> but we just we have to lay that foundation yet, yet again. I won't say it one more time, yet, yet again. We see here, again, in this Joseph narrative, we see the sovereignty of God just saturating the storm. And again, we've, we've, we've called out the danger to not put Joseph up on a pedestal and to try to be like a Joseph, but rather to remember that it is God who is working, it is God who is leading, it is God who is enabling Joseph in these stories. God continues to be the overarching authority in all circumstances, the dreams, the interpretations, the unfolding of those interpretations into actual reality, the appointment of Joseph into leadership, the years of plenty, the years of famine, that famine reaching hundreds of miles away, the word spreading to Jacob here in chapter 42, that there is grain in Egypt. The brothers journey to Egypt. Joseph recognizing these men as his brothers. Joseph's brothers not recognizing Joseph as their brother. Joseph testing his brothers in so many other details that I didn't mention in that little flurry. God is sovereign in all of those things. It's not Joseph masterfully choosing or selecting these things. It's, it's not the brothers controlling or manipulating situations. It is God who is working. It is God who is allowing. It is God who is doing this great work of unfolding his perfect plan and in his perfect timing and in his perfect way among all those that are present here in this narrative. So let us be clear. This narrative continues to be all about God. His working, his moving, his plan, his timing, his way, his covenant, his promises, his people. He remains sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times. And he, meaning God, continues to use Joseph to bring about his perfect plan in a way that will bring maximum glory back to himself. So here we have God revealing his plan to his people through the means of some undesirable circumstances. Have you been there? 
difficult or unwanted circumstances. They have a way of exposing our finiteness and our frailty. And if properly viewed, the circumstances of life should cause us to cease our infatuation with what? Self. And through the means of grace, our gaze is turned outward and upward as we begin to see a revealing of God's perfect plan. And that's what we're going to see unfold here in the life of the brothers. They certainly have an infatuation with self. And through these unwanted and undesirable circumstances, God is going to start to turn their gaze outward and upward as they recognize God in his sovereignty working among them. So we see this process unfold as Jacob calls out in verse number one. Let's read it, chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I love this opening phrase. Jacob, as their father, seems to be recognizing and observing that the brothers are doing absolutely nothing to solve for the situation that they have no food in their land. Do you, do you get the picture there? Can you imagine yourself there as Jacob? I, I kind of picture these, these brothers kind of just huddled up, maybe sitting down, shoulders stooped over. They're having a little woe is me party. Are you there? Can you see it? And Jacob sees them, he observes them, and he calls them to action. Why? Why are you sitting here staring at each other? <laughs> this is the catalyst that God is going to use to start to move them out of this place of isolation, out of this place of inactivity. He's going to move them out of this place of isolation so they can move to a place that ultimately is going to expose their sins so they can receive healing and so that they can prosper into being used by God as he sees fit. But here they are, sulking, living in the consequences of their sin, in a famine, no food, and they're being called to action by the Father. He attempts to stir them up by appealing to the most basic essentials of human nature, which is what? Self-preservation. Do this, go to Egypt, to buy grain, why? The end of verse two, he says, so that we may live and not die. So the situation has escalated to the point that we're talking about life and death, right? We're not just talking about, you know, hey, there's no bread on the shelves at the grocery store, they're running low on toilet paper. We're talking about a situation where there is no food. And if we keep doing what we're doing right now, which is sitting here staring at each other, we're not going to live. We're going to die. So there's a sense of urgency. And Jacob is attempting to stir them up through appealing to their life and their future living. Right? And so here we have in verse number two that we may live and not die. So God right here is beginning to reveal to them his plan that has been in motion now for 22 years. He's beginning to reveal to them that he has been doing what he is doing, but they are not yet in a place to realize it or receive it 
So what does God do? He continues to use these difficult circumstances to draw these brothers to a point of need. So the fact that the brothers are sitting here staring at each other is in no indication of God not working. Right? Because what has God been doing the last 22 years in Egypt? He's working in Joseph's life. He's connecting all these circumstances and these dots. He's given additional dreams and interpretations. There's been some waiting. But God's been faithful to Joseph. And he's raised him up to this point of now overseeing this entire disaster relief operation, if we can call it that, for the entire world. And so Joseph is the man that God has chosen to use. But guess what? God wants to layer in these brothers. He doesn't want them to sit on the sideline. He doesn't want to cast them away as too far gone, as leftovers, as broken Damaged goods. God desires to be in relationship with his covenant people. And as such, he is drawing them back to himself. So God is working. The brothers aren't connecting the dots. They have no desire for that at this point. But God continues to work. And he's planting seeds. And he's stirring them up as they continue to work through this situation together. So it continues to use these difficult circumstances to draw these brothers to a point of need. Up until this famine, they have unilaterally become their own source of authority. They have become literally judge, jury, and executioner. They justified their actions and were living as such. But through this famine, God brings them to the end of themselves. There's no scheming and no plot. It could cause them to sidestep the very real and physical impact of this famine. The circumstances, excuse me, these circumstances are out of their control. They have a literal need. They've been brought to the end of themselves. They need food or they would what? They're going to die. So it's through Jacob that God would begin to draw their minds back to the sins of their past. For it was in this final refusal in the early verses here to send Benjamin that would have jarred their minds of the sons. Why? Why would it, why would it have made that type of, of impact among the brothers? Because Jacob feared in verse 4 that harm, harm would happen to whom? To Benjamin. I don't know about you, but if I'm a brother who thinks that I have committed murder of an earlier younger brother, and my father says, I'm keeping Benjamin back because I don't want harm to come to him, I'm filling in the blanks, like harm came to Joseph, my mind as a brother would have been drawn back to this reality. I'm assuming by human nature that potentially memories flashbacks, and other emotions were sure to have flooded these sons' minds as they were reminded yet again of the, their sins against Joseph. This would be, as we read the story, no doubt a providential seed that God would use in future interactions to awaken their hearts and draw them to a place of repentance. 
I don't know about you, but is this not true for us today? God allows for and even uses difficulty to bring us to the end of ourselves. And it's there that we can truly value, receive, and embrace God's grace in our lives. We're going through a book in our life group called The Imperfect Disciple by Jerry Wilson. We're coming up on our last chapter in that book. But Jared Wilson, uh, in our most recent life group gathering, he pointed our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. In that passage, uh, context, Paul is calling out his thorn in the flesh. If you remember that, three times he prayed to the Lord that that would be taken from him. But what was his answer from the Lord? It was this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. Christ's power in the life of his believers is made not stronger or better, not okay. It is made perfect in what? Weakness. The power of Christ working in our lives and in our world is made perfect in our weakness. Does that not bring to mind the reality of the call to discipleship that we must do what? Deny ourselves? Take up our cross and follow Christ when we come to the end of ourselves? Christ is able to work in and through us and maximize his glory through what? Not our strengths, not our charisma, not all the great things I've got going for me, but rather in my weakness, the power of Christ is made perfect in this world. And so friends, let us embrace weakness. Let us pursue weakness. Let us pray for weakness. Why? So that the, the power of Christ can be magnified and glorified in this world. So friends, I think of those that are in the midst of suffering, those that have terminal illnesses, those that are going through incredible trials and difficulties, Spiritual warfare. Let us not pity them. Let us pray for them. Let us come aside and bear their burdens. But let us pray that they would continue on and be faithful because it's in that moment of weakness that Christ is made perfect in their life. That's incredible. That's incredible. And certainly we see this truth, this timeless universal truth played out in the life of Joseph. And as these brothers come to the end of themselves, we're going to see this power of Christ, the power of God working in these brothers' lives as they come to the end of themselves. So the point of application for us in these first few verses is that we should be on the lookout for God's revealed plan in the midst of life's difficult circumstances. For God will often work to bring us to the point of awareness through the vehicle of difficult circumstances. And it is grace that will continue to to sustain us no matter how long or how severe that season may be. His grace is always sufficient. Why? Because we have an advocate. We have a high priest who's been tempted like yet without sin. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the paraclete, the counselor, the comforter, We've been given everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness so we can run. 
can't be faithful. We can't keep the faith. We can't finish the course. So point number one is God often uses circumstances of life as a means to reveal his, his plan. He's moving them to a point of inactivity, to a point of grumbling and complaining. Who knows? To a point of just nothingness, just sitting there staring at each other. He, he uses circumstances of life to start to reveal his plan to move them from one place to another. Point number two is this. God often uses the circumstances of life as a prerequisite to what participate in his plan. God desires to use us in the working out of his plan. This is beautiful. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he desires us to be used for his glory in this world. So under the sovereignty of God, the brothers of Joseph heed their father's admonition. They journey to this foreign land of Egypt. And lo and behold, verse 6 Look at it there. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. As Pastor Dave pointed out last week, by land, we mean the entire known world. This, this was a big deal, right? So uh, we're not just talking about a little famine in Egypt. And Joseph was able to interpret this and prepare and, and to plan and um, and to be able to weather this, this famine uh, for uh, Egypt, but rather it was, it was broad spread. I mean, he even says here that the famine was in the land of, of Canaan. So this, this famine was incredible. And here we have Joseph. God alone has worked in miraculous ways to take an unwanted, and rejected brother, humiliated and shamed, and ultimately sold for a bag of money. God has taken this man from a point of humiliation, and what has he done? He has exalted him and appointed him over this entire operation for the entire world. This process of humiliation to exaltation. This is one of the key uh, pieces that people point to uh, Joseph being a, a Christological figure that we can point to and we can look forward to Christ operating in a, in a more perfect way than what we see here in the life of Joseph. But did you pick up on those undertones of Christ in those last few words that I spoke? Does your mind think of Philippians chapter number two? With expectation and hope, for it's there in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, that we see this same pattern of humiliation producing exaltation through the power of God the Father. Paul, speaking of Christ, says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did Christ do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God is highly what exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We say amen to that. 
humiliation to exaltation. This is the story of Joseph, foreshadowing the life of Christ in the days to come. So the bulk of, of our text here is Joseph realizing, realizing what? That the dreams that he had had as a young man, 17-year-old young man, those dreams were becoming a reality right before his eyes. Here he, are, here he is over the entire land, second only to whom? Pharaoh. He has risen to the heights of authority in his day. Where are his brothers? Leaving the land of Canaan with their proverbial tails between their legs, defeated without hope, coming to nobody else but the brother that they had cast away and attempted to murder. He remembered the shoes bowing down. He remembered the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to Joseph. Here it is. God was faithful to fulfill exactly what he had revealed to Joseph and in his perfect time. God was faithful to Joseph. His dreams have become a reality. So his brothers come. They're standing before him. Joseph does what he recognizes his brothers. They bow down before him. He treats them like strangers and intentionally speaks rough to them. It says in verse number seven, you see it there. Joseph goes on to do what? To initiate his first in a series of tests that would be used to stir the hearts of the brothers to reconcile with the sins of the past. So what did Joseph do? He questions their motives for being in the land and ultimately accuses them of being what? What does he say? You are your spies. The brothers, what do they do? What do they appeal to? The brothers swear by their honesty in verse number 11. A little irony there, is it not? That they would appeal to their brother that they attempted to murder on the grounds that they are honest men. Joseph, just believe us. We're not spies because we're honest. Joseph has a hard time believing that. Regardless, these men, these brothers, they insist that their motives are pure. They describe themselves as 12 brothers from one man in the land of Canaan. Verse 13, the youngest is with Jacob, and one is what? No more. So they've complete, completely written off the potential that Joseph is alive. And here he is standing among them as their authority. They seek nothing more than grain for their household. So verse 15, we see the conditions of the text laid out. They are to go and get the youngest brother, Benjamin, and bring him back to Egypt as a testament to their truthfulness of their story. Joseph will keep Simeon in prison until they return. They all throw him in jail for three days, and it's here that God, under the incredible weight of these circumstances, really begins to break through their hard hearts. These brothers for the first time in decades, 
we begin to see just a spark of remorse for what they have done. So it's important to note here, though, as we consider the test that Joseph placed forward to his brothers. What was Joseph's motive? Joseph's motive seems to be pure himself, right? He desired to reveal simply the true state of the brothers' hearts. He's trying to determine after 22 years, are they still hard hearts towards Joseph? Is there any type of remorse? Is there any type of sadness over what they had done? So that's what Joseph is attempting to draw out from his brothers through the introduction of this test. So this testing, this dealing with them roughly was all in hopes that they would remember the wrongs that they had committed towards Joseph. On the surface, Joseph was, was stern and direct, right? We see it there through, through the context of the verses that we read. But underneath all of that was a tender disposition and love and affection towards his brothers. We see this in verse 21. With his brothers unaware that Joseph could understand them, they admit that they are guilty. Look at me, verse 24. What was Joseph's response? He turned away and he wept. He turned away and he wept. Let's look at that verse in its entirety. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, okay, here they're appealing to truth, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. I don't know about you, but can you put yourself in, in that context? You've got 11, or excuse me, 10 brothers. You've got Joseph there. He's literally begging them. He's begging them to stop. He's begging them to, to withhold this judgment. He saw the distress of his soul. They willingly and willfully condemned this man to death through selling him into slavery in the land of Egypt. In their minds, there was no way that he would live through that. What did they do? They did not listen when he begged them. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. This was a moving experience for Joseph to hear these words from the lips of his brothers. And so the test is in motion, but it is further complicated as one of the brothers discover what as they, as they leave. And they go on their way, leaving Simeon behind, being bound and kept in, in prison. One of the brothers discovers that money that should have been taken in exchange for the grain was placed back in their possession in verse 28. Describes them as trembling to one another, that their hearts had failed. They were fearful. But God using the difficult circumstances of life, he uses this to establish a new sense 
of urgency. There was no way that they could back out from this now. Not only was their original story in question, they're being accused as spies. One of their brothers was kept in captivity, Simeon, and they're going back. There's no way they can get around this. And now it looks like they've done what? They've stolen grain and kept back payment. So they're getting deeper and deeper into this situation. There certainly is a new sense of urgency. So you see the men that gone from huddled in a little corner, staring at each other, hardened and complacent in their hearts, doing nothing but feeling sorry for themselves, to now what? They're active participants in God's plan. He's drawing them out of themselves, and he is causing them to be active participants in his plan. The brothers were beginning to recognize that God was doing something, and although they weren't quite sure how this was going to end for them and for their lives, they were awake, they were aware, and they were active. So God often uses the circumstances of life for one as a means to reveal his plan, two as a prerequisite to participate in his plan, and our third and final point this evening is this God often uses the circumstances of life as the impetus to trusting his plan. As the impetus to trusting his plan. So what is an impetus? I'm, I'm breaking all the rules of homiletics by using a word in my main point that has to be explained. Uh, but, but I just felt like I couldn't get that word out of my mind and I tried to come up with something else and it just didn't quite have the same ring to it. So just follow with me. You probably know what this word means. It's just not one we use every day in our vernacular. But what is it? It's simply a force that makes something happen or to happen more quickly. This is an impetus, right? This is a force that makes something happen or to make it happen more quickly. So what are we saying by this? God is using the circumstances that these brothers find themselves in as a force to make them trust his perfect plan more perfectly, more clearly, and more quickly. What about you in your own life? Does God ever use the circumstances of life to draw you to a point of trusting him in a new and maybe more complete way? Has he ever brought something into your life that's a, a catalyst to accelerate your progress in trusting him? Not placing the trust in your own way or your own understanding, but trusting his perfect will and his way and his word? How does he do that? Many times he uses circumstances to bring that work about. We see this pattern in Psalms, often in Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I love Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
You see, it is through the acknowledgement of our sin before the Lord and others that we can receive forgiveness from the Lord. This is what we see as this first awakening process, the impetus of trusting God's perfect plan for the brothers starts first through acknowledging their sin against the brother. This is what we call repentance and agreeing with the Lord on what he says in the word of God concerning our actions. This exercise of agreeing with the Lord and acknowledging lays on the foundation for us to have the Holy Spirit-led change of heart. This is repentance. It's a change of heart that results in a change of what? Action. The blessings of a repentant heart grow through the action of what? Confession. Confession is what these brothers needed. 1 John 1, 9, we know it well. Oh, the beauty that is represented here through the means of grace that we have an opportunity to come before God and confess our sins to Him. That is an incredible miracle. Amen. That our sins can be confessed. And because of Christ, the perfect sacrifice, he is faithful, he is just, he is able, he is sufficient to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the brothers are getting slow, but you see a moving in their hearts and acknowledging of their sin. Reuben is now fired up. The other brothers are experiencing the presence of conviction and they seem to be committed at this point to not repeat the wrongs of the past. Why do I say that? This is the first time, this is not, excuse me, the first time the brothers have ventured home with a bag of money and one last brother who was left in Egypt. This could be a repeating of a similar story. For if they did fail again, they were to take Benjamin, and there were to be harm that was caused to him, whom they believed in this point in the story that Benjamin would be the final brother of Rachel. Right? The, the beloved wife of, of Jacob. What would this cause? What harm would it cause? Well, Jacob reminds them through this Hebrew figure of speech in verse 38 that it would simply be the death of him. He could simply not go on living if Benjamin were to be gone. Now, that's, again, probably some really bad parenting on behalf of Jacob because he's certainly playing favorites again. Um, we, we certainly wouldn't advocate for that in our, our parenting seminars, uh, you know, to, to follow the pattern of Jacob here. But uh, regardless, Jacob can't imagine going on living if Benjamin were to be gone. 
So it's here that our narrative seems to end, right, for chapter 42. But it's also here that we truly see a spark of faith and trust in a sovereign God that will continue to grow and flourish into a beautiful story of reconciliation that will God will use for future generations to come as we see God's perfect plan of redemption continue to unfold. When we think all hope is lost, God is there at his work. He's still redeeming. None of us, no matter how far we have strayed or how severely we have sinned, are out of the reach of God's grace. Friends, this has to be a takeaway out of chapter 42 that these brothers have committed the most heinous and horrible sins. They have hated a brother. They have deceived a father. They have attempted to murder and take care and snuff out a life, an image bearer of God. Even in the midst of those horrible sins, God is drawing them back to himself by his grace. So no matter how severely you think you have sinned, we're never out of reach of God's grace. Do you believe that this evening? How often our fair hearts doubt that in the midst of heavy sin, in the midst of besetting sins, well-worn paths that we go back to that well of sin and drink over and over and over again cares of this world, sin clings so closely to us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, when all of that, when, when we attempt to do good, evil, there's a law that evil lies close behind, we just can't seem to shake it. Where's our hope? Our hope is in the grace of God, the mercy of God. It's a pack of envious, murderous brothers, by God's grace, can begin to have their hearts stirred, I think that you and I are able to, as well, by His grace, have our hearts stirred. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that cannot your goal cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So friends, I leave us with this. What sin are you clinging to that is causing you to sit and stare and do nothing? What care of this world has gripped your heart so much that you are literally wasting away in a spiritual famine when the land of plenty is right there for the taking? There is only despair to lose and only hope to gain when you lay it all at the foot of the cross tonight. Sorrow through testing. What's God doing in the circumstances of your life? Have you just fallen into despair, stuck your head in the sand and your fingers in your ear and said, la, 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 and you just, you just checked out? God's calling you to wake up, to be stirred up, to be aware and to take action. If we draw nigh to Christ, he will draw nigh to Christ. Don't run from it. Don't 
avoid it, but simply lean into it and see what God has for you there. Life is working. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this evening that you're on this morning. That you're sovereign and in control. You decide to work on this. So I pray that somebody here that's holding on to sin, struggling with sin, that's grappling with sin, that seems to be hopeless in the midst of their sin. Father, I pray that they would be assert up, that there would be maybe an impetus of their faith and trust in your perfect plan. And that we would see you for who you are. That we would gaze into that empty tomb and we would remember that Christ has defeated something. And that there is a victory waiting for us for all of those to call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. Father, I thank you that we can run to you and be safe. We would experience just that restoration that the brothers here in chapter 42 are beginning to see and feel and come to full fruition in the coming chapters. I pray that we would continue to be excited about seeing your plan of redemption unfold in these pages, God, because the story of redemption here is, is our story of redemption. Beautiful thing it is, Father, that you continue to strive after and to run after and to draw men and women to yourself. You desire to save a remnant. You're still in the business of saving souls, Father. Thank you for that. For not giving up on us, but for loving us, for serving us. Father, we pray that we would change now as a result of hearing the word, but I pray. But we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of it. We would take action, we would pray, we would confess, we would repent. And we would be restored in a right relationship with you. Even tonight, Father, I pray that we do that work. We thank you, in Jesus' name.